This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wye. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously on Bonaparte. During the years when we get a lot of rain, it's like day-glow green here. It's kind of like Ireland. She was an artist through and through, in the kind of way that, like David Bowie, is an artist. It's their whole self that's an artist. If you hear their story and you listen and you find out more about what they went through, you can, in some ways, kind of go back there with them. This is still the part that I I can't, like, it upsets me so much to think about what she went through. That's what I mean when I say, if it was a hit and run, thank you. Because I prefer that to people that she knew fucking hurting her. It's October 25th, 1996. Laura Van Wye has just turned 21 years old. She's living with her mother in Iowa City, taking care of her 14-month-old son, Samson. Laura had broken up with Samson's father, Donnie Knight, that summer, but they remain on good terms, and Donnie invites Laura and Samson to Bonaparte for a party at his mother's house. The party is a small gathering, mostly Donnie's family. His two sisters both had young kids of their own, and they were there. There's beer in the refrigerator, joints are passed around, and a Sega video game is played most of the night. According to what Donnie later tells police, they were playing Freddy Couples Golf. A little after 11 p.m., witnesses say that Laura starts getting ready to leave. It's possible she's upset. Donnie says the two of them had an emotional conversation about their relationship, and another witness overheard what he described as a small argument between them. At around 11 p.m., a friend of Donnie's mother stops by the house. Laura gets into an argument with him, accusing him of having assaulted a friend of hers. It's probably a case of mistaken identity, and we'll look more closely at that in a later episode. But he leaves, and things appear to be smoothed over. So now it's 11 p.m., Laura has Samson with her, and it's an hour and a half drive back to Iowa City. According to what Donnie and the others tell the police, Laura decides to spend the night with Donnie's older sister, Sarah, and her husband, Tony. Tony and Sarah live only half an hour away, in Tony's hometown of Cahoka. Just before 2 a.m., Laura is found unconscious and fatally injured on Highway 136, a few hundred yards from Tony and Sarah's trailer. 25 years later, what happened to her that night remains a mystery. From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers. This is Bonaparte. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
Because Laura is found in Cahoka, and because Cahoka is in Missouri, it's the Missouri State Highway Patrol who are the lead agency investigating her case. In Missouri, as in many rural states, the state police support smaller communities when it comes to major crimes, like homicide. Officer Clemens, whose detailed report of the crime scene is one of our most important sources of information, he's with the Missouri Highway Patrol. But several other agencies have had a role in the case as well. Among them is the county sheriff's department in Bonaparte, and in particular, a former sheriff's deputy named John Zane. Zane, as much as anyone, is the reason Annie and I are in Iowa in March trying to find out what happened to Laura the night she died. It's Zane who began reaching out to Laura's friends a few years ago and eventually got in touch with Annie, reigniting her interest in the investigation. Zane made those calls because, like Annie, he can't accept that Laura's case hasn't been solved. This case probably led me more or less uh, through emotions than anything else. Zane lives a few minutes from Bonaparte, in a comfortable one-story home with his wife. The house sits on a rise at the end of a long gravel drive that winds around a pond shaded by willows. A tan Labrador retriever sleeping in the sun climbs sluggishly to his feet as Annie and I drive up. Zane comes out of the house to greet us. He's a tall man with broad shoulders, the kind of build you get from hauling hay bales and lumber since you're old enough to work on your parents' farm. Uh, farming was really tough through the 80s, early 90s, really tough. And I was going to have to make a change. My kids were getting older, and I wasn't getting any money put away for any of them kids. Zane was 37 when he joined the sheriff's department, motivated by the need to make a proper living, but also by a concern for the community where he grew up. I would see things happen in the county, and I, you know, muttered to myself, why doesn't somebody do something about that? What, what do you think the sheriff saw in you that made him think this farmer with no law enforcement experience ought to be uh, wearing a badge in my... Common sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's most of it. He knew my dad. My dad and my granddad preached honesty uh, when I was growing up, so he knew I was honest, and that's probably a large part of it. He knew me well enough and knew I probably wasn't a real idiot. <laughs> Zane never met Laura, but he's become as much a part of her story as the rest of the people we've met on this trip. Like them, like Annie in particular, Zane's thoughts keep returning back to the mystery of Laura's final few hours. Today, after we visit with him and give his old Labrador a scratch on the head, Zane is going to help us retrace Laura's steps and track down one of the last people to see her alive. According to what people at the party told the police, Laura leaves Bonaparte a little after 11 p.m. on Friday night with Tony and Sarah Bergman. Sarah is Donnie's older sister, and I should note here, there are two Sarahs in this story. Both Donnie and Laura had sisters named Sarah. Donnie's sister, Sarah, is married to Tony Bergman, who's from Cahoka, where they live with their kids, Molly and Sydney, who are five and two. Tony is a few years older than me. He's born in September 1971, right? So at this time, he would have been 25 years old, probably about six feet tall and pretty slender at that time, brown hair. You know, nice-looking person, um, what I recollect about Sarah Bergman. She's pretty short. She had the puffy bangs. She's probably about my size, maybe an inch or two taller than me. I'm, I'm only five foot. I'm, I'm just a little bit under five foot two. It isn't clear why Laura goes to Cahoka that night. The police interview everyone at the party, but only in one of the interview summaries does anyone offer a possible reason for the trip. This is from the police interview with Donnie. 
Knight said Van Wy went home with the Bergmans because the two were no longer sharing the same bed and there were not enough beds in his mother's home. Which would make sense, except there aren't any beds in Cahoka either. Tony and Sarah live in a two-room trailer. Laura had been planning to sleep outside. She's brought her tent, and it's a beautiful night. So why drive half an hour to sleep on the floor of a trailer? Perhaps it's nothing. Anytime you're dealing with events through the lens of old documents, you're going to have gaps. Maybe it's too late to set up the tent. Maybe Laura wants to spend more time with Tony and Sarah. Whatever the reason, all the witnesses agree that Laura, Sampson, and the Bergmans leave for Cahoka shortly after 11 o'clock. According to what Tony and Sarah tell the police, Tony starts out driving. After a few minutes, he decides he's had too much to drink, and he pulls the car over so that Sarah can drive. The group finally arrives in Cahoka at around 11.45 p.m. However, on the drive down, Laura mentions camping, and the Bergman's daughter, Molly, announces that she wants to sleep in a tent with Laura. To keep her happy, Sarah suggests that she and Laura sleep on the living room floor instead, in a den of pillows and blankets. By 12.15, Tony and Sarah are in their bedroom. In her written statement to the police, Sarah describes the last thing she sees Laura wearing cream or white gauzy slacks, bare feet, and a forest green long-sleeved shirt. Her last words to Laura, she says, are good night. I love you. The plan is to return to Bonaparte by 8.30 the next morning. Sarah sets her alarm for 6.30, but sleeps until 6.50. When she comes out in the living room, she sees Samson and Molly, but not Laura. In her written statement, she tells the police. The first thing I saw was Samson's naked bottom with a wet diaper about a foot away. With no sign of Laura, Sarah wakes Tony, telling him perhaps Laura has gone to get diapers. Tony gets dressed and realizes his black satin jacket is missing from its hanger in the small closet by the front door. That's odd because he rarely wears it. The jacket was a gift from Tony's former employer, whose logo, Mike Sanders Masonry, is printed on the back. What Tony doesn't notice? His knife is missing, gone from the shelf by the front door where he keeps it. It's missing because that's the knife Laura had in her pocket when she was found. He then went to the Ayurco, the convenience store slash gas station, the same gas station that the truck driver had walked to after he found Laura's body in order to call an ambulance. And he asked around at the Ayurco, have you heard anything? Have you seen anything? They didn't have anything to say. So then he went to his parents' house, which is actually on the same lot as his trailer, right? So his parents have a little house. He had a trailer on that same lot. It's not a very big lot, less than half an acre, I'd say. At his parents' house, Tony starts making phone calls to his sister-in-law, who also lives in Cahoka, and to Sarah's mother in Bonaparte. It's around this time that he learns that a body has been found by the side of the highway. The local radio station is making a running announcement. Concerned, he calls the sheriff. Until this point, we have only the statements that Tony and others make to the police to shed light on Friday night and Saturday morning. But now, some corroborating evidence enters the picture. Thanks to the police dispatcher, who answers Tony's call. The call originated at 07.59.38 hours and concluded at 08.02.22 hours. Robert E. Walker was the dispatcher on duty and received the call. But the call is inconclusive. 
He asks them about this person that's found by the side of the road. You know, they, he describes her, and he and the dispatcher seem to agree that the person, whoever was found, that it doesn't match his description of Laura. I think they describe it as a woman, 130 to 150 pounds, five foot three. The dispatcher's information is wrong. Laura was 5'6 and thin from breastfeeding Samson. Tony asks if she was wearing a jacket. The dispatcher doesn't know. The Bergmans are supposed to be in Bonaparte in half an hour, but there's still no sign of Laura. With help from Tony's mother, Sarah gets her two girls and Samson ready, and they agree she will head to Bonaparte with the children while Tony stays in Cahoka. After they leave, Sarah's sister Rachel comes over. She has a picture of Laura with her for the police. Tony and Rachel go to the police station just a few blocks away to give them the photograph. Officer Clemens reports that they arrive at approximately 9 a.m. Tony sees something on the duty officer's desk. It's a description of the woman found on the highway. This description has more detail than he was given over the phone. In particular, it mentions she was wearing a black satin jacket with Mike Sanders masonry printed on it. Rachel would later tell the police that from the look on Tony's face, she knew immediately that the dead woman was Laura. Tony calls the house in Bonaparte, where Sarah has just arrived. He tells her to come back to Cahoka and to bring Donnie. Then he and Rachel sit down with Officer Clemens and recount the events as I've described them here. When Sarah arrives with Donnie, she and Tony decide they will go identify Laura's body, which is several hours away at the trauma center in Quincy, Illinois. Donnie goes to Iowa City to break the news to Laura's mother. When you need to reconstruct a series of events from scattered bits of evidence, determining an exact chronology is essential. A partner at Gibson Dunn that Annie and I both worked with was a big proponent of timelines. Like, literally, a horizontal line across the page, or across hundreds of pages, with events marked along it by date and time. She would have us do timelines for everything. We even had a specific software package just for timelines. It was something Annie and I joked about. Annie would call me to say, I talked to Andrea about this new evidence. And I would laugh, asking, she wants a timeline prepared, right? Over the years, though, Annie and I came to see the wisdom of this approach. Putting together a chronology or timeline is just a basic exercise to understand a set of facts. It's one thing to read through a stack of documents. It's another thing to try to organize the information in those documents. And there may be various ways you want to organize it, but chronology is certainly one that is almost always useful because our world happens chronologically. So if you're trying to figure out what happened, a chronology is one of the most useful things that, that you can do. And it, it will just highlight connections or things that are unexplainable in a set of facts. Things get clearer when you wrestle them into chronological order. And if they don't, that tells you something about the quality of your evidence it gives you new questions to ask. Now, there are challenges. A common mistake we all make is to put too much weight on the earliest evidence that we happen to receive. If the first witness you talk to tells you that a person left a party at 11.15 p.m., then you build your timeline around that. You become invested in that timeline. It forms your mental model of events. As a result, you'll tend to evaluate subsequent evidence based on how it fits into this mental model. It's a lot of cognitive work to rebuild your timeline or to rearrange your mental picture of events. 
it's a lot easier to disregard or even fail to notice evidence that contradicts the timeline you already have. Psychologists call this confirmation bias. We're used to thinking of confirmation bias as something which affects us if we have strong feelings about a topic, something like politics or religion. But it's an occupational hazard for both cops and lawyers who are in the business of developing theories based on incomplete and sometimes inconsistent evidence. A good investigator keeps an open mind even as they develop a theory of the case. So as we try to piece together the last hours of Laura's life, it's important to keep in mind that most of what we know is based on statements made by witnesses filtered through sometimes sparse police reports. And even honest witnesses are often unreliable. So it's on this unsteady ground that we're forming our opinions, our best guesses about what happened. As we begin our drive from Zane's house, I ask him to tell me the story of what happened the night Laura died, as best he understands it. I was expecting a narrative about events at the party, when Laura left, the drive to Cahoga, the story I've related to you. In truth, I was hoping maybe he'd tell it better than I did, and then I could just play you that tape. But Zane, he appreciates the limits of our certain knowledge. In the early evening hours, there was a party of the family that Laura had a child in common with and uh, in Bonaparte in our county. And that's where it began. Four hours later, five hours later, she's dead uh, along a road in Clark County, Missouri, which is about, oh, it'd be 30, 40 miles away. And we're just trying to fill in the parts in between. What fills in those parts is this police file and any other evidence we can collect. Tony and Sarah's description of the last few hours of our timeline was the first evidence that came in, and it's tempting to rely on their statements as the truth about what happened. But do we think their statements are reliable just because we heard them first? Or do Tony and Sarah perhaps know more than they are letting on? Retracing Laura's steps, we need to keep an open mind. This is the house where the party started, yes. Do you know who lives there now, John? Yeah. The sister to Fred Haynes. Still, That's what I thought. Jackie yeah. Fett, is that right? No, Janet. 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 Is that the, the Fett's mother? The uh, Fett yes. Kid's mother? Yes, Jacob and yeah. Benji's mother. Take a uh, left, I'm sorry. We're in Bonaparte, outside the house where Donnie used to live, where Laura went to the party the night she died. Annie, John Zane, and I are in this huge black SUV that I've been driving around Iowa. They were out of regular size cars at the Enterprise in Cedar Rapids, so they handed me the keys to this 6,000-pound behemoth instead. It's got cameras and sensors all over, and everyone seems to be attached to something that beeps or buzzes at me. It feels like the least subtle stakeout in history, parked across the street from this house that I've been picturing for years. It's a two-story brick building with white sash windows and a simple portico in front. Federalist style, I believe is the architectural term. There are some shingles missing from the roof. One of the windows doesn't sit right in the frame. I expect if we were to go inside, the floors would creak. A few kids' toys are out in the yard. There's no sign of anyone home. Now, Bonaparte is a small town. According to Zane, Janet Fett lives in the house now. Her sons were friends of Donnie's. In fact, they were here, at this house, the night Laura died. And this is a long-standing point of frustration for Zane, that friends of the Knights own the house now. 
he wants to get a forensic team in there. Even years later, he thinks there could still be important evidence inside. I uh, put quite a bit of effort into a search warrant on the house uh, back in Bonaparte, hoping to find blood traces. We were blessed to have an old uh, forensic guy retire out of Davenport and move down into our county, and he did a lot of training. So I got a lot of opinion from them as far as how long will blood evidence be valid, would last, and several years. And I tried real, real hard to get a search warrant for blood evidence, the floor with the cracks in the floor. That's also a question we could ask Tony. Tony and Sarah might be telling the entire truth, or they might be changing a handful of small details because some of these details are incriminating, or perhaps just embarrassing. Or their entire story could be a fabrication. Their speculation that Laura left to get diapers certainly doesn't convince Annie. You know, Laura was not, she was a very resourceful and extremely smart person. And there's no way she would have left her baby at one in the morning to go to a convenience store and buy diapers. That would not have happened. And even if she did leave for that purpose, or any purpose, how does she end up on Route 136 wearing Tony's jacket carrying Tony's knife, a plate of rice, and the rest of her strange belongings. And if she was hit by a car, or by the trucker that found her, how does a sober adult get hit by a vehicle on a clear night with a full moon on a straight, flat road with no traffic? Driving away from the night house, I ask Zane if there's anything unique about Bonaparte. No, it's this common for this area. Small dying town. You have grocery store, one convenience store, you can buy gas, and the school closed, so they don't have a school anymore. For us, though, Bonaparte is significant. As we construct the timeline of Laura's life, Bonaparte is where our certainty ends. Consider the most basic question. Why was Laura in Bonaparte that night? When Annie first told me the story, she described the gathering in Bonaparte as a birthday party for Laura. That's how the media covering Laura's death at the time characterized it as well. As early as Tuesday the 29th, the Cedar Rapids Gazette ran a front-page story with that detail, and it appears in media coverage to this day. But was it a birthday party? Donnie has said that it was, and that he'd baked a cake. But nobody else at the gathering describes it that way, or even acknowledges that it was Laura's birthday. In their initial statement to the police on Saturday morning, neither Tony nor Sarah say anything about Laura's birthday. Sarah specifically says she and her family were there to visit Donnie and her other brothers. Later, Tony would say under oath, he didn't know it was Laura's birthday at all. You can see why that detail is stuck, right? Why it's become part of the mythology of the case? It deepens the tragedy for it to have been her birthday and fits our need for narrative. Sure. It probably doesn't matter if it was a birthday party for Laura or not, but it's the very first point plotted on our timeline, and maybe we can't even trust that. This would be the route they would have traveled coming from Bonaparte to go to Cahoka the night that happened. So, John, the people riding buggies, are they Amish? Why are they riding? Yeah, they are. We've always had a, a pretty strong Amish community in the western part of the county. Even when I first started, 
uh, 25 years ago, and there was a good-sized Amish sect. Nice people. Sunday's their day when they party. Huh. Sunday night, they go, they'll buy beer, all the beer and cigarettes that they can buy. And on a Sunday night, if you see a horse going down the gravel road, just barely walking, you know, the kid, the horse knows how to get home, and the kid's a drunk, he don't know where he's at, so the horse is taking him home. That's funny. Yeah. A car can't do that. No. Not yet, anyway. It's a long way from New York City, but the local color is a welcome distraction as we cross the Des Moines River and head toward Cahoka. We'll go across the bridge and go left at the intersection there and go down to Cahoka. I don't get out that much anymore down this way, so. It's an easy drive, and along the way, Annie tells Zane more about her friendship with Laura and how his call led her to review the police file and throw herself into the case. Then our conversation circles back to Tony Bergman and what he might know, what he might tell us. According to his statements, he and Sarah were the last two people to have seen Laura alive. So this is Cahoka. So Jason, straight down here, probably the light. That's the Ayurko at that corner. And Laura's body was found about, I think it's about a third of the mile to the right there. But you see how much flatter it is here than Bonaparte. It's remarkable how quickly the topography changes and how much that changes the feel of the place. Bonaparte, it's a town down on its luck. But if you keep your eyes off the details, the missing shingles, the closed down stores, it's beautiful, green and wooded, tucked into folds of this rich black earth and a meandering river. Northeastern Missouri, on the other hand, has no such natural beauty to distract the eye. It's all straight lines, flat plains. Still, despite the absence of cover and the high-tech gadgetry of my rental SUV, we're practically on top of our target before any of us recognize it. Keep going. Is this Henrietta right here? It's, it's oh, this might be it. Yeah. Yep. That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Voice acting by Matt Addis. Special thanks to Thomas Matisik. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.